800-799-SAFE, the National Domestic Violence Hotline. On average, nearly 20 people per minute are physically abused by an intimate partner in the United States. In one year, more than 10 million women and men will experience domestic violence. Welcome to Normalize the Conversation. I'm your host, Francesca Regeter, and today I'm joined by a survivor and advocate of domestic violence, Hope Carpenter. Hope has been part of the wellness industry for 13 years, working in spirituality and healing arts, and is now a current master and social work student, studying to become a licensed therapist. Join us as Hope shares her experience with domestic violence, what it looks like, and how she is healing from the trauma. Tiffany, thank you so much for joining me today. I am really excited for our conversation. But before we begin, I really just want to check in with you. How are you really? Mm. I am, I'm feeling a little overextended. I think in February, I realized that I was experiencing burnout. And so I spent most of that month um, probably trickling into until this recording just falling in love with life again and, and revisiting why I do the work that I do. I love that. It's so easy to feel overextended and overwhelmed, even when you love doing your work, when there's just so much going on, so much happening, and it doesn't feel like you're getting so far forward that you want to be in that moment. I know for me, at least that's how it is. If I haven't like changed the world by the end of the day, I'm like, like I quit, I give up. So it's just really easy to feel overwhelmed when you have so much to do all the time and progress is something that's step by step. Mm, Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I remind myself that, you know, I'm not single-handedly going to change the world. Um, It happens in community. It happens in solidarity with each other. And as long as we we try, then hopefully our community will help fill full the space as well. I love that mature perspective. I, on the other hand, I'm like, I'm going to do it all on my own. No, you can't. Like, it's true. It takes all of us making a difference, doing one small thing, doing one big thing, sharing our stories, using our voice, advocating for others. It really takes everyone doing something, whether it's on a bigger level or smaller level, every step counts. Mm, yeah. So tell us a little bit more about you. Sure. So I am the daughter, the youngest daughter of a Taiwanese immigrant, my dad, and a refugee from the Vietnam War, my mom. And at the age of nine, I was involved in a car accident where my dad was driving and he unfortunately passed away. And I acquired a slew of injuries, including breaking a couple bones in one of my legs and permanently paralyzing one of my arms and much later being diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. And I share all of that, not because we owe anyone our stories, but but more so that I think it provides context into the work that I am doing now. So as the daughter of Asian immigrants, I had internalized that we shouldn't share anything that might make our family look bad, because it would mean that somewhere in our lineage, there was some bad luck, and other families would not want to associate with us because they wouldn't want our, our bad luck to rub off on them. So for 12 years after the car accident, I actually didn't tell anyone about it publicly. I wore long sleeves all the time to hide my arm. 
And growing up on the East Coast, if you know what summer is like on the East Coast, it was unbearable, but I felt like hiding my arm was worth more than the discomfort of being really hot. Um, I told everyone that my dad was way on a trip and outside of my elementary school classmates, because I was in fourth grade at the time of the car accident, the my peers in middle school and high school didn't really know about the car accident. And the turning point happened again, 12 years after the car accident, after a couple of years of co-founding a Taiwanese American club with my college, my university peers, I looked and, and our Taiwanese American club was successful. And I thought if we can do this for Taiwanese American students, they have found community pride, culture, solidarity. Can we also do this for disabled students? So that's where the first iteration of Diversability came from, a disability student club. Um, and that was 2009, so 14 years ago. And today we've grown our community and our ecosystem to over 80,000 on a mission to elevate disability pride. Um, what that means to me is we wanna help disabled people self-actualize, like become proud of who they are and their disability identity. And then we also want to help them amplify and accelerate their advocacy by helping them get featured in podcasts or get featured in press and find speaking opportunities to elevate their thought leadership. You are absolutely incredible. It's amazing to see that just in college, you were able to form a community, allow people to feel connected, feel like they belong, and then take that another step further and do it for the disabled community because there's not a lot of representation. If you look in movies, you look in magazines, you watch a fashion show, anywhere you go, there's not a lot of representation. There's not a lot of conversation. I was in a coffee shop that one of my dad's friends owned a few years back and the tables were put together really close. And I looked at him and I was like, what if someone's in a wheelchair? Are they able to get around your restaurant or your coffee shop? I was like, it's so, there's so many small things that we don't realize are a big deal that just kind of get swept under the rug because no one's talking about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that's a great example of understanding that there are rooms that we don't have access to, that people like you raising the question about, Hey, what if a wheelchair user, someone in a wheelchair, you know, wants to frequent your space or come to this restaurant? Um, how would how would they do that, right? And I think that I do think that things are getting better in terms of representation. Um, we still have a ways to go, but again, since I since I've been active in this space for the last fourteen years. In 2009, people would come to me and they would say, "I don't understand how a disabled person can be proud." Like, what does that even mean to, you know, thinking back to 2015 when New York City, when the New York City mayor declared July as Disability Pride Month and now to see Disability Pride Months all over the country and even have the, the president and the White House host a, a celebration, a Disability Pride celebration. So there have been things changing. And I think that thank you, thanks to technology and social media, we're starting to get the voice and the platform that maybe traditional media outlets hadn't given us. It's so important that, I mean, the development of social media, the rise of social media, it's really helped amplify voices and helped get more important messages out there and help get people wanting to be part of a conversation that they might not have even known was happening. 
when you're posting on social media, do you ever get pushback from people? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that part of part of, I guess, the dark side of social media. So the 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 wonderful side of social media is it's actually how a lot of disabled people find each other and find community. Because many of us, you know, might not have community in the places that we live. So, you, for example, you can go online and search hashtag brachial plexus injury. That's the name of my um, of my paralyzed arm. And you'll find a lot of other people who are living their lives and also have brachial plexus injuries. But the other side of that is, you know, kind of the, the downside. You know, you could call it pushback. Other people might call it trolls. Um, and I think that's the side that really does impact people's mental health. And it's hard where, when the same vehicle that you use to connect with others is the same place where you might experience harm, that ends up becoming a really difficult nuance to balance, right? Because you want to show up to continue nurturing and building and connecting with others in your community. But it's also the place where you don't know if you're going to get a comment or a, a DM from someone who was saying some not very nice things. Uh, one of the things that I have done to, I don't know if work around that or manage that, is to make sure that I have community outside of social media, um, outside of the phone. I think this is part of why uh, we run a couple of virtual communities at Diversability, and one of them is called the Diversability Leadership Collective, and that is hosted on Mighty Networks. Uh, so it's off of social media. It's its own app. Um, you know, it's it's an intentional place that you go and you know that when you're there, it's only our community. You're not getting stories of other people or comments from people who aren't in the community. So so, yeah, I think that the that the pushback is there. Um, and I also come back to the disability community is not a monolith, right? I'm not a wheelchair user. So the the experience that you shared earlier around a wheelchair user wanting to go to the cafe or the restaurant is not a lived experience that I have. But I do have a lived experience of not being able to cut my steak dish um, or pull a piece of bread off of the bread loaf that's being passed around. Um, so there are different experiences that those of us with different disabilities have. So I also think that part of the pushback is connected to representation as well, that as we increase the amount of disability representation, if, even if it's on, if it starts on social media, if it then goes into traditional media to then Hollywood, TV, the small screen, the big screen, then it will be less sensationalized, our experiences. Uh, and there's another disability advocate named Emily Ladau who says that in order to make the world more accessible, we need to make our disability experience more accessible to the world. So I think that's part of why we're showing up on social media. But you also know that by sharing, you know, personal experiences that you've had, you're also you're also going to let in some it, when you share your light, there is going to be a little bit of darkness. So so, yeah, so I think it's just been important to me to remember what the broader mission is and then make sure that I have support systems outside of if I'm experiencing harm on social media. It's so important to have those support systems. And that was what I was going to ask next, right? Is how do you protect your mental health in the midst of that? Because it's so difficult when people are commenting angry, mean, rude comments directed at 
a piece of you that you genuinely can't change. And it's like they're attacking a part of who you are. And that just happens no matter what you're advocating for. It happens all the time to people. And a lot of people just forget how to use their voice in the midst of it. And they start to back down. So to see you've been doing this 14 years, to be able to talk about it, to be able to constantly do things, what's advice you have for someone who might just be, they got a pushback on something and they're afraid to speak again? Yeah. Um, I remind myself of the power of community. So, you know, I've had a couple of posts go viral and have been really overwhelmed by the deluge of comments that end up coming in. And if I don't have the energy to respond or even to look at them, then I don't. And my hope is that my community will also come in and respond to the comments or, you know, hopefully have your back. And I think that you know, you said something earlier about like having to to show up and respond. And the other alternative is is we don't have to. You know, I think that with with so much of advocacy and activism on social media now, it's just even more important now more than ever to just make sure that we're protecting our peace. And if that means we can't engage with the content, then that's what we have to do. Um, and sometimes, you know, if we have like a mean comment coming in, yeah. responding or having someone else respond with, hey, like, what makes you say that? Or I'm I'm curious to learn more about why you have that perspective. And maybe it's me coming in with that response, or maybe it's someone else coming in. But that's kind of like where the role of allyship comes in, is that in the identities that I hold, the things that I say might not resonate with the person who's making that comment. But someone else who has been following my content or is part of my community and may have other different demographics can respond to that person and step in. And that's like a great example. You know, there was a there was a post that my friend posted about uh, white male allyship and kind of what that looks like. And he shared this example of how after a meeting, someone had said something that was that was harmful to someone and the person like came to my friend who's a white man and said, hey, you have to say something about that. And he said, well, if you know that was a problem, like, why don't you say something? And the and the person was like, because that person who said the thing will listen to you, but he won't listen to me. And I think that like understanding where our spheres of influence are is going to help help carry this forward. So, you know, me coming onto your podcast, your listeners will hear my story. And then they can carry that message forward too for to their spheres of influence that maybe I don't have the capacity to reach. So yeah, I I guess the answer to that is, you know, sometimes there are some some things that, or I guess there are three things. One is you step away to do what you need to do to tend to your mental health, turn to your support systems. If it's a text chain, if it's a WhatsApp group, if it's going to brunch with a friend, if it's going on a walk. The second is I kind of have some general responses of leading with curiosity and asking and better understanding what is the thought system, what's the the root of the the why the person thinks that way. Sometimes sometimes it's better not to engage with trolls, but if you do decide you want to engage. And then the third is just trusting that you are in community and that your community will come and support you and defend you if if needed. That is amazing, amazing advice because 
again, a lot of times people just don't have advocacy can often feel isolating. And to know that there is a community out there who's willing to step in, who's willing to just listen to you, to validate you, to support you, to take on different demographics, to be part of the conversation and use their influence is so, so important. I want to switch over to the topic of ableism. For people who don't know, can you give kind of a generic definition on what ableism is? Sure. So ableism is a system of oppression that places bo- that places value and or worth on a person's body and or mind. So notice that in that definition, I didn't mention disability. So what's interesting is that you actually don't have to be disabled to experience ableism. So I think about the ways that Asian women's bodies have been hypersexualized. I think of our treatment of Black bodies. I think of the ways that women's bodies have been nitpicked at forever, um, especially, you know, in advertising. And I think that's starting to change as you see like real bodies, like those are all examples of ableism. So again, it's coming back to when we place value and or worth on one person's body over another or one person's mind over another. That is a really great definition and explanation of different ways it can manifest because It's really important that we have these conversations and understand what it is so that we know how to move forward. So would you mind giving a few more examples of ableism and questions maybe we can ask ourselves to know if we are participating in this system of oppression? Yeah. So um, a couple, you know, we can start, we can start with social media. It can range from If you're creating a piece of content and someone who can't see isn't able to access it or someone who can't hear isn't able to access it, that's an example of ableism. Um, So one of the things we think about, you know, especially if you're doing podcasts, is do you have a transcript with your podcast for people who aren't able to hear this conversation? Um, And so like even for you as a podcast host, do I mean, do you have a transcript for your podcasts? On the YouTube, it's on there. Yeah, so... So I also think of like thinking about different creative ways and and a lot of the platforms have embedded these embedded these within. So that's that's like a first example of um of like social media content. A second one could be, you know, making a judgment like if you are thinking about hiring a person, making a judgment on their skills and capabilities based on your own assumptions of their disability. That is an example of of ableism in in the workplace in hiring. Um, Ableism in physical infrastructure. It can be if there isn't a way for someone who is not able to use stairs to access your space. um, That's a way that our physical infrastructure has um, uh, perpetuates ableism. There are currently laws in place that make it legal for disabled people to make below minimum wage. Mm -hmm. Um, If you rely on public benefits, yeah, I think in 37 states, it's still legal to pay disabled people below minimum wage. Goodwill is the biggest biggest culprit. You can actually go online. There's something called a 14C certificate where you can see all the companies and organizations that have these certificates to pay disabled people below minimum wage. Wow. Um, 
And, you know, if this is your first time, this is a way that systemic ableism is manifesting itself, right? These are all the different types of ableism. Then there's something called lateral ableism. So again, as I mentioned, like the disability community is not a monolith. And so every once in a while, you'll have someone say, oh, well, I don't get offended when someone uses that language or makes fun of my disability. Um, and when we think about lateral ableism, it's when we... Uh, when we think about kind of the broader community and the things that all of us need to do to move forward and one singular person's experience uh, diminishing what would help support what what would help support like us moving forward in a way that that can help tackle ableism. Um, and then there's also internalized ableism, which is a disabled person thinking that they are less than or that they feel like they have lower self-worth or self-esteem just because of their disability. Uh, it can also manifest in the way of ableist microaggressions, the way we talk to disabled people, if we infantilize them, if we make assumptions about, um, you know, like we make assumptions that like, oh, you can't have sex or you don't wanna be in a relationship or you don't want to go to this restaurant, or deaf people can go to concerts, you know, it's kind of like, again, coming back to that statement around in order to make the disability, in order to make the world more accessible, we need to make the disability experience more accessible to the world. Um, and I think it was incredible that at the Super Bowl, you know, at Rihanna's halftime show, there was a deaf sign language interpreter who was, who like really made it ent and entertaining, you know, being able to uh, sign and perform. So uh, ableism honestly manifests itself in so many different ways in our society. I think those are just a couple top level ones. I'm sure you have ideas as well. Even what you mentioned about the restaurant and not having enough space for a person to get around. You can even think about the way supermarkets are set up and if those aisles are not big enough as well. Um, it could also manifest in the way we make clothes. Um, and so one of the things that has been interesting is there was recently a statement that was made around a Skims advertising campaign, um, uh, advertising shapewear and bras, and they featured a model who uh, who was in a wheelchair, and um, and there was a, a conservative commentator who made a comment around like how far are we going to take this inclusivity thing, and. That's an example of assuming that disabled people don't want to be featured or don't want to be seen in advertising or that disabled people don't wear underwear, you know? And I was thinking about that recently, like literally all people wear underwear. The fact that only in the last couple of years, adaptive garments have been made like bras and underwear for seated body types or for people who have upper extremity disabilities, like like these are all embedded in the assumptions that I think we make about the disability experience. Yes, there are so many assumptions made. I love all the examples you shared because I think a lot of it goes, we just don't think about it a lot of times. Like to be completely honest, if we haven't experienced it, if you haven't experienced it, it can be hard if you haven't heard a conversation about it either to know what to look out for, to know that you're contributing to a system that is harming others that's not including others that's making people feel less than that's not being inclusive or kind yeah and one thing that someone said to me recently that really stuck with me it was my friend Stella 
she said at concerts, there's not like an audio sensory area for people who can't do like those strobing lights. And I was like, wow, I never thought about the concert experience and how it could be harmful to someone. I never thought about that because for me, love the lights, love how loud it is, love the whole experience. Never realize not everyone experiences it that way and that it's safe for everyone. And when she brought that to my attention, I was completely mind blown at how something that should be a conversation, that should be something that we are talking about, that we're working toward is just not anything that we would automatically think of. Yeah. And and I think that is embedded in the definition of privilege is when you don't have to think about something, right? Like I'm an Asian woman. I'm terrified every single time I leave my house or take public transit because I can get harassed. I can be told to go back to where I come from. Right. And I have a feeling that, you know, you don't share the same race that I do, that maybe you haven't experienced that as well. Um, and, and I think that, you know, one of the things I talk a lot about is like, I don't think privilege should be used as a lever to guilt people, but I think it is a way for us to understand that this is our superpower um, in the ways that we, the things that we haven't had to think about that people in, you know, whatever our different identities are, have to think about every single day. Yes, absolutely. It's so important to recognize what privileges we have and how we can use them to help others. And as I've continued to learn more through, I mean, I will say that something that's really, really helped me continue to open my eyes in so many different ways that things I never would have. I grew up in a very privileged circle background and my community was everyone was just like me. And it wasn't until I struggled with my mental health, ended up in a psych ward where I realized people couldn't even afford therapy. Like that never even crossed my mind that people couldn't afford healthcare. And as I've been able to have conversations with people from all over the world and sharing their own experiences, it's really opened my eyes to want to create that platform, to want to know what language are we using that's harmful to others? What are we doing and not even realizing it? Where are we being ignorant? What can we do? And for me, that's been so amazing, but not an experience a lot of people, I think, who have a very privileged upbringing who's never had to experience something often get when conversations aren't being had held constantly which is why I appreciate you coming on here and having this conversation with me because not only do I get to continue to be educated and learn but hopefully my audience will as well yeah and and I think I I think there are like two things that are coming up for me and you know one was two years ago after the Atlanta spa shooting, I just like was not in a good place. And I remember calling, calling someone um, who didn't share my race and asking, you know, how they were supporting our community. And, And they said, oh, well, I have like so many other things going on right now. Like I just haven't, haven't been able to. And I said, I would really like to opt out too, but I can't. And I think that you know, choosing to opt in sometimes can be really uncomfortable. It's not our area of, I I was going to say our area of comfort, even though I just said it was uncomfortable, but it's uncomfortable because we have to have compassion that someone's reality is different than our own based on their gender or their race or their disability status or religion. So, you know, 
sexual orientation, uh, their gender identity, you know, there's so, there's so many. Um, and then the second thing is, you know, I think a lot about the echo chamber and I grew up in a predominantly white town about 20 minutes outside of DC and the public schools, uh, it was predominantly Jewish. Uh, the public schools were all amazing. Like I didn't have to pay for any school until I went to college. And I, I just think about, and I guess this is where like the power of social media is as well, is that part of the opt-in can be as easy. And this is just a start. I don't want to say that it's an easy process. Um, can can simply be diversifying your feed, choosing a couple different disability advocates or people who don't share your perspectives to follow. Um, and then you'll start to see things and maybe you don't agree with them. And can we also make space to sit in the contradictions? You know, I recently just think um, I got invited uh, by TikTok to go to DC a couple of weeks ago and the creators who were there with me were all so different. Some of them, it was their first time in DC. They had never been on a plane before, um, living in Mississippi and, uh, and were running their small business. Some were, you know, grew up in, born and raised in LA or like me, like grew up in, in DC. And since, since I was little, was on a plane visiting my grandparents in Taiwan, you know, but what united all of us, even if we didn't necessarily agree on our lifestyles or our political views, was that TikTok had changed our lives in one way or another, right? And I think that that is a fascinating connector because it was interesting because a couple of the other, a couple of the creators got interviewed on Fox News. And uh, if you like, I I feel like that, I feel like they've been vilified depending on, you know, which, which side of the political, um, what your political ideology is, but for that, for those creators, that was their audience. Right. And I loved that the people that were curated, that they brought together, we would all have a media outlet that worked. Like we would all have a media outlet that we could talk to who would resonate with our message. Um, it kind of comes back to what I was talking to about the spheres of influence. But, but yeah, I think stepping outside of your echo chamber, even if it's just starting with following a couple of, of people um, who have identities or perspectives that are different than your own. Um, yeah, I, I think, you know, all of our alg algorithms are different. And one of the things I encourage people to do, and I've actually started to do this on my own social media content as well, is I'll put an asterisk on there and I'll say, hey, I've done my own research, but you should too. All of my sources are here, but go check out your own sources because these are the sources that I use to frame my opinion about this. But you may visit other sources. And I think as long as you are, you know, visiting a couple of different sources yeah. and then and then determining what your opinion is, then I think we can make space for that. Absolutely. I love the way you said that. It's so important to look at different sources and formulate your own opinion and not just take the opinion of one source. Because we need different perspectives. You can't, one thing I always like to say is you can't formulate an argument if you don't know both sides. You're not going to win the argument because you don't know what you're fighting against. Mm. So if you're not educating yourself on different perspectives, using different resources that are available to you, it's a lot harder to 
formulate an opinion that's true to who you are and what you actually believe in. Because you might not realize that the messaging you're getting is not connecting with who you want to be. And that's not to say that it's anyone's fault that the first thing that comes up is something that they already agree with or that they've been hearing their whole lives. Because the algorithm does tailor to what they think you want to hear. No matter what the topic is, it's so important that we, like you said, do that research and look at different perspectives and opinions and resources, hopefully credible resources. I'd like to throw that out there. Credible is very important um, so that you can formulate a standpoint and perspective and opinion and learn what you believe in and what you want to advocate for and who you want to be. Maybe who you are today is not exactly who you want to be because you haven't learned yet and you're trying to learn. That's okay. But moving in the direction of who you want to be is only possible if you expand your knowledge and don't continue to live within that same algorithm that's been fed to you for X amount of years. Mm, yeah. I, I mean, I think I think there's definitely a group of people out there who are totally fine in their comfort space and and that's okay. And I think I've had to learn that those aren't the people that I'm trying to reach because you you have to, in order to show up to a conversation, you have to be willing to listen. Um, and if you're not, then it's, it's, it's not a conversation, right? I'm actually involved with an initiative. It's called Starts With Us that is focused on trying to address some of the polarization that we have in this country. Um, and, and they have a really great email newsletter. I'd recommend folks check it out where they'll provide, you know, like a step process, like to prepare for your Thanksgiving dinner at home with your family. Um, if you, if you might have different views on something. Um, but I often come back to, I don't know. I mean, so much of why I built Diversibility was really highlighting how valuable our disability lived experiences are. And for me, I think it comes back to like personal, like, I just love the power of story. I love the power of personal stories because if it's your story, you can't mess it up. Um, if someone doesn't agree with it, like that was your truth and your experience and you can be validated in that even if someone doesn't agree with you. Right. So, so yeah, I think that there's power in the, the personal story. Um, and, and sometimes like even in my own advocacy work, I'll come, I'll come back to that. I don't want to speak on behalf of experience on, on behalf of disability experiences that I personally haven't had. Right. It's my own privilege that I haven't been paid below minimum wage. You know, it's my privilege that I was able to get a college college degree. And so part of what I think about now is, you know, I, I have, I have this saying, I, I think I adapted it from, from Jennifer Brown, who's, um, who's a, a diversity equity and inclusion practitioner. And she says, how can I use my power and privilege to fight for more equity? Right. So I know that given my background and the experiences I've had, I have space, I have access to spaces that other people in my community don't have, um, and if you were just educated today that it's still legal in the U.S. to pay disabled people below minimum wage, that. then then you then you can go and do research. You know, there's um, uh, I have a couple. I have a a social media series called the Anti Ableism series, um, and I've done a couple a couple. Um, there are 13 states that have phased out sub minimum wage, um, but it's also 
you know, and as I've done more research, there's, there's a lot of nuance there as well. So do we have an integration plan available for the people who were getting paid below some minimum wage to integrate into a role where they're paid at least minimum wage, you know, uh, rather than just saying, hey, we're done with this. And now you now you don't have an opportunity to work. So so I think it's just making sure we have all of those pieces in place. And um, and a lot of what other people are advocating for is called competitive into integrative employment, CIE. I think, but don't quote me on this. I'm, you know, I'm doing my own research. I'm trying to learn and I'm also trying again to use the power and privilege I have to say, hey, this is still legal if it's in the state that I live in or the state that I grew up in, like leveraging those to talk to my elected officials. It's so important that we have these conversations. I actually was really shocked to hear you say that because first of all, minimum wage is below a living wage. So to think that you can pay someone even lower than that that's it's not I don't even want to say it's not fair because that's not even like a strong enough word to describe it it's not it's just not right we're not giving people a chance you're just not giving people a chance at that point yeah I mean I think if we I mean to me it's dehumanizing and I think I think about kind of you know when when we were asking about examples of of ableism and thinking about okay we're putting value and worth on a disabled person's capabilities by saying they get paid this, which is below the minimum wage that we have set as a state or a city. Um, but but yeah, I, I also I also have a little bit of compassion with understanding that these were put in place during a time when maybe no disabled people were getting any opportunities. So perhaps as an incentive to say, hey, if you file this certificate, and this is all public information, you can go and see all the organizations and, and companies who have filed 14C certificates. Um, but but yeah, and, and so it's also like, how can we make sure that the laws, uh, while they were put in place at a certain time and maybe made sense then, have to be updated as well? Yes, you're absolutely right, because it may have made sense at the time. That may have been a step of progress. And it might have been a great step of progress at the time, but looking at how we can continue to make progress, because it's not a one-step thing. It's a continuous, continuous battle. This staircase is honestly probably never going to reach the top. There's always going to be room to grow. And it's so important that we continue to reach and we don't let one step of progress from the past dictate, that's it. We did something. Great. We did something then. Now we need to continue to do something. Tiffany, you've been absolutely amazing. As we're wrapping up, I was wondering, I know you've shared a few resources as we've been talking, but if you could share maybe a couple social media accounts you recommend and maybe a couple of resources that you recommend so people can continue to learn. Sure. Um, so our uh, Diversability also has a community on Facebook that is open to disabled and non-disabled allies. And if you're looking to be in a disability-centered community, be witness to the types of conversations that we're having, maybe ask your own questions as well, continue to learn in community, you can check out the Diversability community on Facebook. I think in terms of people to follow, it's really it's really your own preferences. You can, again, search specific hashtags. Uh, Amani Barberin, who goes by Crutches and Spice, is a really great account to follow across any social media platform. 
I know I mentioned Emily Ladau. She also wrote a book called Demystifying Disability. Um, then Alice Wong runs the Disability Visibility Project, also has written a couple of books, has a podcast, a blog, does a lot of writing as well. Um, and you can also follow me if you'd like, or you can also follow Diversibility and, and we'll, we spotlight a handful of other creators over there and also share educational content as well. Um, but I would stress to consume content that is made by disabled people. Um, you get to hear our own firsthand experiences rather than someone either appropriating our, ex our experience or making assumptions about what they think we can or can't do. Um, yeah, and I think I think those two are are a good place to start. Tiffany, you are absolutely incredible. Thank you so much for not only educating me, but educating my audience and for all of the amazing work that you're doing. I'm so appreciative of you for having this conversation with me. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for listening to Normalize the Conversation. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. This podcast is an initiative of Inspiring My Generation. Focusing on normalizing the conversation, bringing education and awareness to the forefront, and amplifying global voices to spark change and hope. Inspiring My Generation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization on a mission towards suicide prevention through awareness, conversation, education, and support. Connect with us on Instagram at Inspiring My Generation and visit our website, inspiringmygeneration.org, to learn more about our work and how you can make a difference.